Welcome to the Ohio Adult Allies podcast, where we are developing, inspiring, and empowering youth leaders. Today's topic is problem identification and referral. Today we are talking with Holly Jacobson. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Holly Jacobson. I am the Youth-Led Prevention Coordinator um, up in Geauga County. I have had the pleasure of doing youth-led work for, goodness, uh, a bit six years. Um, and I have several different leadership groups that I work with. So we have about 13 different uh, youth-led groups in our area. One is countywide. We have residential facilities as well as middle and high school groups that we work with. Karen Lackey. Uh, I'm Karen Lackey, and I am the Director of Prevention Services for the ESC of the Western Reserve. And uh, I've been doing youth-led six years, uh, pretty much, since we started our training. And uh, we supervise and run, as part of the Prevention Department, 12 different youth-led groups uh, across five school districts. Cheryl Sells. My name is Cheryl Sells. I am the Director of Youth Prevention for Comp Drug and Youth to Youth, based in Columbus, Ohio. I have been working in youth-led for 14 years now, but I also was a student involved in youth-led programming when I was a teen myself, a, a few years before those 14 years. Uh, we do countywide programming as well as some national programming and in-school programming, a variety of prevention from middle and high school age students to adults who work with youth. Robin Wilson, Hi, uh, my name is Robin Wilson. I'm the project coordinator for Healthy Choices Caring Communities. I'm an advisor for our youth-led prevention group called YAC. I've been working with them for about five years, but really probably closely involved in um, youth-led prevention, like the back end, for maybe three years. And your host, Amy Collins. I'm Amy Collins. I am a senior project manager at the Voinovich School at Ohio University, and I've been a part of the Ohio Adult Allies uh, training and technical assistance team for the past four years. Problem identification and referral. Well, thank you everyone for joining today to share your experiences and your expertise related to problem ID and referral. So let's go ahead and jump into it. And the first thing I want to talk about is what is it? What is problem identification and referral and what does it have to do with prevention? To me, what problem ID and referral is, is looking at students who um, may have been involved in some sort of substance use, um, and looking at that and identifying how you can still be educated and involved on the prevention side. So while some people may look at prevention is only for those youth who have never touched a substance, never used it and never planned to, others see um, with problem ID and referral, you're looking at students who maybe have already engaged in some sort of substance use and how to um, connect them with the right resources, get them involved in programming, provide some education. So um, that's kind of my brief um, explanation of what that is. And I think, I think it can be um, implemented in many different ways, depending on the type of program that you're running um, and in how, how you view that um, in your own organization. I think I want to add just one thing to what Cheryl said, because I agree with all of it, is that I, I think the one thing that we often do, and because the CSAP strategy is, is written that way, is we focus only on, on substance use. 
And when we do youth-led, there's a multiplicity of things that youth can design activities around. So sometimes it could be depression, anxiety, um, it could be bullying, it could be other issues, whatever they see as their main problem. So anytime we run across in youth-led issues that rise to the level on any subject of somebody needing referral, somebody needing further intervention, or training our kids to be able to identify who those kids are as part of their activities, I think that's the only thing I would add is kind of broaden that perspective a little bit outside of just substance use. So Holly, can you speak to those situations that constitute the need for implementing your problem ID and referral process? Yeah, absolutely. This is prevention, right? So we're we're trying to prevent. So oh, because they use they they're not in our program or they shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be involved in that. But a lot of times, those students are are, are in our area, right? You know, because Youth is bringing in a diver, uh, diverse group of students. And so I think one of the things that we have to realize is that there's a lot of times where young people are either reaching out for help because of a mental health issue or they are, you know they were at a party and they're experimenting or whatever the case is. And so we really have to step back and think like, just cause I'm prevention doesn't mean that I shouldn't figure out like kind of how I can assist and help them and get them to the right resources. Um, so I think there's a lot of times and a lot of things that we're doing, especially when our young people are creating uh, such amazing and, and wonderful initiatives there's a lot of times that things come up that we don't even expect to happen. And so we really just kind of always need to be aware that things are going on and like, how, where do we go from here? Like, what's our process? Like, how do we, how do we take prevention, but yet know that this has been identified and, you know, get them to the right resources. I think there's a couple examples that, that might be, you know, a, a little more specific is when, when young people design any kind of intervention, when they're doing their implementation of activities, um, they might, you know, identify there's a need for a mentoring program um, in one of their schools. They might do an, an after-school program um, with students that are, that's prevention education. So there's a lot of activities that they design and implement. And in doing that, they have connection with other students. So anytime you create anything that has connection with other students, um, you know, a mentoring, one of the mentees that's an elementary school student comes with bruises on him. Um, you have, you're doing prevention education and, and you have that, the young people who obviously speak like they've already, you know, used or have an issue or their families have an issue with alcohol or substance abuse. So, so those are just examples of prevention activities we do that might rise to the level of, oh, wow, you know, there's a need for, for problem ID and referral here or a need for further intervention. So that's just a couple of examples. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Karen. That was a great segue. You know, just thinking about how problem identification and referral intersects with youth-led programming. And you gave some great scenarios that are helping um, to illustrate um, your experiences. Um, are, do others have other scenarios they'd want to share that helps illustrate this, um, your experiences? You know, going back to a little bit of what Karen just said, you know, we've, our young people have created programs and initiatives and things that have happened. Um, and there's a few times where we've had to use, you know, we have to identify the problem we have to refer, right? Um, you know, we, for example, we run a camp, um, which I'm sure a lot of people do. If you have a student that comes to camp, they like Karen said, you know, what if they're coming and they're covered in bruises or they, you know, identify, you know, tell, tell another young person something when they're at camp, like, how do, how do we use like, what do you do with that? Um, how do we refer that? You know, we ha I had a student reach out to me. It was probably about 1030 at night, one of our leadership students 
who reached out and said, somebody posted something on social media, I'm really concerned about their safety, what do I do? Um, you know, and we had to go through, we had to create a procedure, but we had to go through the whole steps of like, okay, what do we do? We've identified it now. How do we go through the process of making sure that the student is safe um, and they get the, the help that they need? And so it happens in a lot of things that you honestly wouldn't even expect it to happen in. I agree with what Holly was just saying. I mean, I think another thing that we see is a lot of times for youth, the adults that they meet through their, their prevention activities or youth-led prevention, whichever type of programming they're part of, are, are maybe the only trusted adults they have in their lives. And so they may feel more comfortable to disclose information that they're not disclosing where they don't even maybe, they're either asking for help straight out or they don't realize that they're asking for help. They're simply just finding somebody that they feel comfortable to talk to and then in that position that that advisor is in is then on them to figure out how do I connect them whether that be something I can provide myself or I find the right resources to provide that for them because I think it happens with us every day sometimes it's really minor and other times it's it's a bigger issue and you need to connect them to um to to more um skilled or trained professionals to be able to provide the the help that, and support that they need thanks cheryl so speaking of just you know i want to build off what you said about connections what types of community partners um does your organization refer uh young people to um, so with us specifically, I mean, it depends on the situation. I think we're looking at sometimes it could be connecting into somebody in their school if there's an issue that's re um, going on regarding their school setting or somebody else that they know through school. Um, if it's at a camp or a conference, it's an on-site person they can talk to immediately um, so that they're, they're um they're not holding that in. They're dealing with it on the spot um, that's that's trained in, in, in those areas. Sometimes it could be um, other providers of, of treatment or, or mental health. I think it really does depend on the scenario and the case um, in a case-by-case -case basis. Sure. And Robin, I see you nodding. You're hearing some similar things of what you all do. Uh, yeah. It it's so dependent on the situation to say specifics. Um, it's just kind of important to be able to offer that um, support and be the person, um, you know, the frontline person to say, I hear what you're saying. Now, what's the next step that we can do? I think that we rely heavily on one specific one. I mean, we have a multitude of partners, um, but we have a um, helpline or a cope line in Joggy County where we run all of our districts. So I think anytime there's an issue that rises to the level of not knowing how to handle it ourselves or knowing it needs extra intervention, be it a, a crisis call or be it a soft call just to talk to somebody, um, we we have that number, we have wristbands with that number, our kids know that number, our staff knows that number, everybody has that number memorized. They have it in their phones, they have it everywhere. So that's one specific thing you can always have in your, in your tool belt that's pretty easy. And going along with what Karen was just saying, like. Our young people, um, especially in our countywide leadership group, they have actually had open dialogue, we call them community dialogues. They've had open dialogues with our mental health facility that runs the COPE line. They've had open dialogue with um, our JFS director for our county. And so, as well as many other people, but had, 
the young people having connections with those agencies and those individuals who can then help. So anytime that we call and we say, hey, we have a young person that we would like to refer that we want to get additional support for, there, you know, we have that relationship that they are automatically like, okay, you know, we know that they're prevention, but we know that they really want that this needs additional support and additional whatever it is. Um, and so even just our young people knowing that those resources are out there for themselves as well as their peers um, is really important for those agencies to then know what youth led is and know how to, you know, that we can all work together and collaborate has been really helpful. So Holly and Karen, what, um, what criteria does your program use for its problem identification and referral strategy? We do for the youth for the youth who determine whether they should take it to the next level, we do um, a, a part of a training as part of our youth-led MARIAC group, which is see something, say something. So, so we don't put the onus on them to decide whether it's a referral case. We put the onus on them to decide whether they're concerned about that. So if it is a concern to them for any reason, then they're to bring it to us um, and use that policy. Uh, so that's that's one of the ways um, that we train. And then we also have our other procedures, um, how we train our staff is different, policies, procedures, and protocols we put in. And the fact that we're in schools makes us mandatory reporters as well. So mandatory reporting on any kind of suspe suspected substance abuse or physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, um, then we go by state criteria for that. And we use that policy for, for that. And I think it definitely depends on the programs or the things that we're doing. You know, our young people created a peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, um, which is in three different schools. And so we don't just send those young people out to mentor. We actually, we do an entire training on red flags and what do we need to notice and how do you build relationships? And what if they say something and it, it just doesn't feel right? Even if they don't understand why it doesn't feel right, you know, if they just have a feeling and they just know something's not right, we always just tell them to talk to us. Um, and again, building that relationship with our young people that they can even turn to us and say, hey, something doesn't feel right. Um, is really the only thing that we need to to be able to move for, further with, you know, identifying and, and getting support. <laughs> I saw you nodding again, Robin. <laughs> is there anything you wanted to share related to the topic here? Yeah, you know, I agree that um, to have those conversations before there is a problem, to have those um, policies and procedures in place in advance so that you know what's going to be expected um, and they know if there's a problem you are prepared you know we like to have those conversations at the beginning of the year throughout the year uh, to say these are some of our resources or these are where you find resources um, when we develop our um, campaigns and our media for um, targeting youth a lot of times we automatically put in like the crisis text line or suicide hotline depending on what format that is or what our focus is we might change up the resource but we always try to include some of those resources for people who may be adversely affected and, and don't know where to go thanks robin so you guys have touched on this um at various times but i i do want to to pose this for a discussion amongst us is what is the role of young people with a problem identification and referral strategy um, I would say first and foremost, yeah, and I, I like where Karen talked about see something, say something, but I also think an open mind um, from the, the peers involved is that 
um, in the programming that's occurring, people are coming with varying different backgrounds, varying different needs, varying different experiences, and um, understanding that this that depending on on the spe the specificities of the youth-led group, that it can be a place for for any student, and that. Um, because of, of, of an experience, it doesn't mean that you can't change and learn from that and grow from that and, and um, be involved on the other side of, of prevention. And so that's one thing that I've experienced with some of the, the youth where I've had students who went through treatment and, and recovery and on the other side were saying, I want to be involved in a prevention program, even though I have this past. I'm not using, I'm, I'm clean, I'm sober, I want to be a part of this message um, moving forward. And so I think with some students, um, they, they kind of need to look at th that they have a message to share as well. And in and, and our role with, as adult allies is to make sure that it's a consistent message with what the program is all about. But I think um, helping all teens see um, that I don't want to use the term second chances because that sounds too simple, but I think that there's still something that they can do about that on the other side. I think those messages, they resonate so strongly with other youth too. Uh, when you have somebody who has been in a situation like that and come out on the other side, you know, I think other people who are struggling in that similar situation, they look to these people in leadership roles, and I think that can make a real difference. So the responsibilities for young people, one, you know, is to know if it's unintentional, wow, I'm running this program and all of a sudden this happened. They have to know who their trusted adult is. They have to know our procedure for reporting those things. They have to have participated in a training, be it a red flags training, a mentoring training, um, mandatory reporting training, they have to participate in that. Um, and then lastly, they, they obviously have to, to um, know their own resources in case that there's nobody that's available immediately. So that's kind of their role for the stuff that goes, oh my gosh, it happened accidentally, what do I do? They have to know the procedures, they have to know the resources, they have to know that kind of stuff. So we've had a lot of um, good conversation about um, experiences and scenarios. And now I want to switch gears a little and, and, and start focusing more on what are those tips that we can share uh, for adult allies to support a foundation for problem ID and referral. So specifically, how can adult allies prepare to develop a problem ID and referral strategy for their youth-led program? Well, my tip is before you develop a strategy or a plan or train your young people, know all those things yourself. Have contacts in the community, know your resources, know what United Way 211 is, know what your local COPE line is or your helpline, know what your resources are, know job and family services policies, know all those things yourself. Uh, and so train yourself first and train your staff first. And it makes it easier than to put it in the young person version and to adapt it to your youth level. And I definitely think that it's okay to ask, you know, ask other prevention specialists, like, what do you guys use in your agency? How does it work for you? Um, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to the schools, ask a counselor. Like if I have a student that ever comes up and says something, what, what would you like me to do to refer them? You know, and just, just have those conversations again, you know, it might be concerning or, or 
you know, scary, scary to do, but just have that conversation, talk to people. Um, you know, we're all here as prevention people, which is why I love the prevention field. Cause we're like one big massive family. Like we just want to help each other. And so reach out, talk to people, um, you know, see what they they're using. So there were some things that you said earlier, Karen, about procedures and policy. And I wonder uh, what you might want to share about those for folks and how you know you how you developed them and how you came into that process yes we developed them accidentally every single one of them because we ran into problems as we developed activities and went oh my gosh what do we do um it, it was one was the, the one that holly shared earlier was we got a phone call at 10 30 at night about this social media post and the student that looks really a concern so goes to holly first goes to me second and we both looked at it and go wow it doesn't look that serious so what do we do now uh, and so it went up the chain then to my supervisor to the superintendent to the helpline director and the sheriff's office and a well check happened and luckily it did happen because there was a student in serious serious crisis and it truly was you know from what i hear because it's confidential information it was a, it was a life-saving situation but we got lucky. So what we did is then we called every provider, we called every principal, we called every guidance counselor. We said, we got lucky this time. How would you like us to handle this? Who is your contact at the school? We need the student's home, home address. We didn't know the student's home address. Um, we asked the direct COO of our behavioral health agency who runs Copeline. Do you want you to be the contact? Is there another contact you want? So it took us to understand every single person's procedure, what they, how they would like us to handle it. And then we wrote the entire procedure backwards. So we really got totally lucky that it worked out the way it did because we had no procedure. We got lucky with who we called and those people just happened to pick up the phone or something horrible would have happened. Um, so, so that brings me to my second point is to develop real, real procedures. It starts with relationships you have with the providers in your community. If, you, if we didn't have relationships, nobody would have picked up the phone. You know, by the time we got to the director of Ravenwood, it's not her job to answer Copeline. She answered the phone at 12.30, past midnight. So that was because of relationship, because she saw who the call came from, figured it was important. So that's the other thing I would recommend as well. Um, the other thing with policies and procedures that we look at is we look at where we're doing services. So if we're in a community center, what are their policies and procedures around these things? We're in a school, what are their policies and procedures on mandatory reporting? Um, who's their contact person to go to if there's an emergency, if there's a crisis, or if there's a concern? Um, so, so knowing the policies of the, pe the people you work with and the settings that you're in, that's another real important one. So, well, I wanna add something to the thing that you just said. So when, once we accidentally <laughs> got our procedures and policies, and like Karen said, we, you know, we kind of, what is everybody else's policy and procedure? And then we kind of built ours from there. And then what we started to do is, you know, additional schools. So that was at one specific school, but the other schools that we work with, we go in and say, you know, hey, we have this policy written on this. You know, we work, and we know we work with a lot of your young people. Here's what would happen if anything happens. Like, and, and, and talk out that conversation. And like, you know, is there anything that you would prefer differently for your school and how your school works? Um, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to change our policies, but at least we kind of know ahead of the time before we get to a situation where it's critical and it needs to happen right now. Um, 
uh, we have we have the policies and procedures for a mentoring, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, you know, young people working with elementary and middle school students, you know, what happens if they tell you something? What happens if there's a sign of abuse? Um, you know, and just trying to, so that we, yeah, we accidentally have to do all of our procedures as they've come, um, but just kind of figuring out what that is and, and talking through it, really. I think when we design now, anytime we look at any activity that young people are going to implement, I come at it with the phrase in my head, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen? And because it's happened and, and we're like, okay, let's prepare. Okay, so if we have students doing counts just to see negative posts on social media, sounded easy enough. Well, that's when they ran across a concerning statement, didn't even think of it. We thought they were just going on counting negative posts. Um, so, so everything we design now, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen? And then do we need a procedure for that? So we kind of work it backwards that way. And I think the other thing that we didn't necessarily take into consideration at first is, you know, my only credential is not prevention. I have a counseling credential, you know, Karen's a social worker. We have, so we had to also look at what our ethics and our boundaries are and what our procedures are for our other licenses and then figure out how that works in the mix, you know, because Karen's my director, we fall under a lot of times her policies and procedures ethically for you know her social work or whatever so there's also there's a huge piece of it that you really have to sit back and say ethically how does this work licensure how does this work what are, what is everybody else's policies and procedures and how, how do we make them all work before something actually happens you got this don't worry it's fine yeah that, that's a great point because this is where sometimes when the policies and procedures crash um, we had an incident in a school system uh, where I clearly, under my licensure, thought it was a mandatory report to Job and Family Services. It wasn't even close to being a question. It didn't raise to the level that the school district thought it was a mandatory reporting issue. Um, so I have, you have to deal with superintendents by that point in time, because I had to report it. It's my license. And to write that policy of what our procedure is for mandatory reporting in any school system had to go through our superintendents, had to go through the Board of Education, had to go through all of that. So, so sometimes you stumble on things that writing a policy is very, very big because it was a policy that says, by law, we have to break your policy and you school system are our customer is really the way ESCs look at it. So that can get very, very sticky as well. So make sure always to include you know, supervision um, and your board policies or your 501c3 policies, anybody you can to understand how differences might exist. And that goes back to a little bit earlier when I was saying, like, once you have your policies and procedures, taking them to the school beforehand, before you get to a point where they're like, well, we, that's not what we would report. And then we say, hey, remember when we went over the policies and procedures? Yeah, and I wanted to um, circle back to something Karen had mentioned, because we've been talking a lot about how we prepare adults in our organizations and in our communities how uh, how do we prepare young people for this strategy i think training relationships knowledge of resources um and and this this one is this one we came up with only because we had to do the red flags training i was amazed at the amount of empathy and perspective training that young people needed. You know, for as wonderful as they are, how creative, we're asking them to perceive something that they don't have experience in, that's not always, that's obviously not positive. And, and for them to actually put themselves in 
somebody else's shoes and to be able to feel comfortable in addressing it, asking it, reporting it, even understanding it, that was a much bigger learning curve. So we did a lot with emotional vocabulary. We did a lot um, with empathy activities. We did a lot with uh, just because it's not your perspective, it doesn't mean it's not a, a perspective you should have and need to know to do whatever role you're doing. Um, so that was one of the biggest things that surprised me in, in preparing young people. Um, besides just the hard trainings, what is, what isn't, and here's your research. And I think the most important thing for me that I would have to say for our young people in, in preparing them is really having a real positive relationship with them. Because I feel like the, the more that we have an open and honest and positive relationship with our young people, the more they're willing to reach out and say, hey, I noticed this, or hey, I'm feeling this way, or hey, this is going on. Um, you know, we if we don't have that relationship, it's, it's harder for them to want to reach out or to say something, um, whether it's about themselves or somebody else. So that's really, I feel like the foundational building block um, and, and being able to assist them and even moving further. And even if they don't know where to go from there, the fact that they have a relationship with you and know that they can talk to you and know that they trust you to, to guide them in the best way is I think the most important thing when you when you start working with your young people in regards to CCF6. Really anything, relationships are the most important, but especially in this. So if you could give one piece of advice to people about problem ID and referral with youth-led programs, what would it be? This sounds terrible, but expect the worst and plan for the best. It's, it's the only way to write a good policy and really be prepared. Because we're talking about some very, very serious things when we're talking about problem ID and referral. And if you're not prepared for it and you don't prepare your kids for it, you know, bad things can happen. Um, and like I said, that sounds, terrible and negative, but you know, that would be my advice. Thank you, Karen. How about others? Don't put it off. Don't think that, oh, you know, we're just a tiny little town. We don't have to worry about that. It, it's not that big of a deal. We have an informal policy or we have an idea of what we might do if there was a problem, like a general problem. Don't put it off. Make the policy, prepare in advance, educate your kids so that they're prepared in advance and i think that um you know that just be preemptive i would also add that um if you're working with youth there's things that are going to come up i mean don't assume that there's never going to be any problem id and referral in your programming um, it might not be something that you go around and teach policies to or, or how um, or share experiences. But if you're working with youth, whether that be five kids in an after school program or 50 kids on a countywide level or anything in between, um, there's going to be things that come up along the way and, and not to be doomsday like Karen, but like there's going to be problems that occur and you're going to be put in a situation where you need to be, I'm not saying that Karen is a doomsday thinker, by the way, <laughs> just agreeing that um, you just need to be prepared and you need to know that um, things will happen and not to assume that, oh, it's it's a half an hour program that meets after school or it's it's only this, it's not only that, you know, you have kids in front of you, you're a trusted adult in their life and you need to be prepared, um, whether that be on a large scale or not. Um, because uh, 
I'll just give a quick example. You know, I, I work for this large organization and we do conferences and we have overnights and we have regular meetings. And so I always have kind of that hat on, but I also have served as um, an advisor to a small community coalition youth council. And sometimes I only see those kids six or seven times a year. And so I don't get to know them as, as well as I do with the, the students that I work with on a, on a, on for, for my other program. And so kind of assumed like, oh, this is gonna be easy. We just come, we do this program six or seven times a year and you know, you do the best you can, but that's it. And and in one of those meetings that we had, a, a student disclosed information that I thought, well, now I have to act on this, you know, but she felt in that moment that it was a place where she was comfortable to share. And it concerned me enough to the point where I had to make sure that I contacted the school and. And so I wrongfully assumed we don't need a policy for this group. It only meets six times a year. And, um, but, but so I think that's, that's my advice in a long winded way is, is don't assume that you don't need it. Um, don't assume that it's not something your, your group does. Um, it's always going to be there if you're working with you. And going right off of what Cheryl just said, I think the biggest part of that that she mentioned about her story is that she had a young person that felt comfortable in that space. So obviously that even though they meet only a couple times a year, that relationship that that student has with her and whoever else might be there was strong enough for her, for her, for them to be able to come out and say, Hey, listen, I want to share this. Um, and so really trusting those relationships, building those relationships with your young people, um, hopefully having a policy in place, but if you don't going with your, gut, prevention gut, but also really start to think like, where are we going to be? We should do this ahead of time instead of after. Um, but those relationships are so important. Holly, can I just add one more thing about the relationship piece? Because the way you were speaking about that made me think of something else. I think the other piece is um, the relationship you have with students and the relationship that the students have with the other students is, is also equally important, I think, too. Um, and so to um, Karen's point about training adult allies, I think it's really important to 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 do some sort of training amongst your your youth-led group as well, because they're forming different types of relationships and they're level of empathy or understanding or recognition of whether this is a, a serious thing or not. Um, oftentimes you hear teens saying, oh, they're just looking for attention. And, and that's scary to hear as an adult, because while we all know that there are teens who do crave attention, but as, as um, trained Prevention is we know that's got to come from somewhere. So is it is it something that we need to worry about or is it that, you know, big or small, um, it, they, they're just craving that attention for whatever reason. It could be that they come from a large family and they don't get it at home or it could be um, something way bigger. And so I think that level of, of training the students as well is, is to not kind of belittle anything because it really could be something larger and it is hard to sometimes make that determination but relationships are the key to understanding and recognizing signs and what's normal behavior versus what's and i don't i know we don't like that normal but what is um common for that youth versus mm, this is something that i haven't seen before 
Yeah, and I think that's an important point, Cheryl, because I think the one thing that we always learn, we know we learn more things from kids than we can ever teach them, but their perspective on so many things is unique. And I remember planning uh, a prevention education program and they said, no, we, we would like to do this. It was basically a peer-to-peer -peer mental health program. And they said, we don't want teachers to have this program and this training to help us. We want to have this training to help ourselves. And I'm like, whoa, now that's as, that's as problem idea and referral as you can get. Training young people to identify and refer their peers. And that scared me to death. And my first thought popped into my head is we can't do that with kids. And, and I've learned a thousand times in my life, yeah, you can do almost anything with kids because they really are capable, they're creative, they know what the issues and the problems are, that's what we're all about. And what ended, what they ended up doing was doing a peer-to-peer -peer education on how to help each other with seventh graders, seventh graders. And it probably, we just got the data back, it was the most improvement I've ever seen from a pre to post test of any program I've ever done in all my 30 years. Um, so my advice is don't think they can't do it. You know, don't dismiss them because you think it's too serious of a topic or, or something like that because they've surprised me every time and they, they can do it. Thanks, Karen. And just kind of toward that spirit of what we've been sharing, that this is a topic where all of us are still learning. Um, just for this last question, I want you to take the time now um, to talk about what questions uh, did you want to answer or did you want another panelist to answer that we have, have not asked you about yet? I have a question for Karen and Holly and obviously, and, you know, Robin, please chime in, but more specifically, um, how do you involve parents with the policies? What level of involvement do parents have with, with some of these? Do they Are they aware of, of what your protocols are? Or um, oftentimes we run into issues where students are talking to us about things going on at home. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know what level of involvement you actually have with parents um, when certain family or home-related things come up? I think that that our involvement with parents isn't other than they're very clear because they obviously have to sign permission for all participation. Our, our, our application procedures and our permission procedures are different um, for num the different programs that we have. So if it's our mentoring program, it's a different application that will have some of the policies and procedures in it. Um, it'll also have some of the topics of the training so they know they're going to get red flags training you know when they sign that that permission slip uh, for the youth advisory council for the yak kids they sign including which we've run into the, the drug-free commitment to be drug-free um the commitment uh, we have behavior examples and and we have had to discharge young people for breaking those rules well it's right in there we have to notify your school our policies if you get removed from YAC for this or this, we have to notify your school, we have to notify your parent. And, and the parents know that and the school know that, knows that as soon as they sign that permission. And yeah, you try making that phone call. You know, excuse me, but you know, um, we had to discharge your son for this reason. Um, so so it's, it's on the back end, you, um, it's on the way front end, they sign it, they read it, and only time we're involved with them really is if we have to engage a policy involved there. Yeah, and I think, 
specifically with YAC, we do have that policies and procedures and like, here's what happens if we have to refer something and, we, and the parents do have to sign that. And so not only a student, but the parents have to sign it, they have to send it back to us. So at least we have record that that is there. And if we have to have that conversation, we refer, hey, remember when you guys sign this, this is, you know, and here's where we're at. Um, but as for the other things, I kind of always, like if we have more leadership groups in the school where we're, we're not necessarily as, connected with the parents um i think we do two different things i rely very um heavily on how i was trained as a school counselor which is like you know you know what to report to parents and you know not what to report like that whole confidentiality piece like there's a whole line of like if a student if your school counselor soon comes in and they tell you certain things you you know that they're happening you know that they're there they're not reportable you don't have to share that with the parents necessarily same thing kind of goes with how I do this unless a parent specifically comes and they want to know something I knock on would have never had that. Um, but we were, you know, we always try to take the, we always want to keep the students in best interest in mind. Um, and sometimes, you know, have, you know, again, that's that, that part of that relationship and knowing like, Hey, you know, I'm really concerned about you. I think it's best if we maybe call your parents and talk to them. Have you talked to this parent? Have you addressed them before? Like is, you know, do you know about any of this? Um, because then if they also have a relationship with that parent, you can kind of not push it off to them, but you can kind of lean on the, on the school to help you bridge that gap between you and the parents. Thanks, Holly. Great, well, thank you everyone for your time today and for sharing your uh, experiences and ideas with Problem ID and referral. Thank you for listening to the Ohio Adult Allies podcast. You can find more of our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play by searching Ohio Adult Allies. Episodes are available at www.ohioadultallies.com.